0: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj,
0: a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head.
1: Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode features discussions of serious bodily injuries and gore that some people might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13.
0: It was 3 p.m. on the afternoon of January 14, 1993, and the Galeras volcano was still spewing ash and smoke. It was just over an hour after the eruption began. Another blast could happen at any moment. And yet, geologist Patty Moths and PhD student Marta Calvace were driving their Jeep up the slope climbing closer and closer to the volcano's mouth. It was a decision that defied all common sense, but their colleagues had been right inside the crater when Galeris erupted, and the two women were going to rescue them or die trying.
1: It was the two military police officers riding with them who were the most scared. Patty tried to reassure them that once a volcano blew its top and expelled its gases, there usually wasn't another eruption immediately. That was cold comfort to the officers as they sped directly toward the column of black ash shooting into the sky.
0: When they finally reached the summit, Patty and Marta were confronted with the reality of the destruction. Cars had been crushed by falling rocks. White-hot rocks still hissed on the ground. The police station, built on the summit had been smashed to pieces by debris, and a man was staggering out of the smoke, their fellow scientist, Andy Adams.
1: Andy had just crawled out of the crater himself. He told Marta and Patty that there were still men trapped below, and they were still alive. Patty approached the rim, stunned by the raging, fiery pit down below. It seemed impossible anyone could survive this. But then she heard a faint, gravelly voice calling from the wreckage. Her mentor, her friend, Stanley Williams.
0: Patty looked at Marta. They both knew what they had to do. They were going to climb down into the mouth of the active Galeris volcano. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco.
1: And I'm Tim Johnson. Every week, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our second episode on the Galeras volcano survivors, a group of scientists who, despite all odds, survived in the center of a massive volcanic eruption. Last week, we explored the disaster that left Stanley Williams and his team of scientists struggling to stay alive inside Colombia's most active volcano. This week, we'll look at the aftermath of the eruption and the two remarkably brave women who led the rescue effort.
0: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on facebook and instagram at parcast and twitter at parcast network
1: and if you enjoy today's episode the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening it really does help we also now have merchandise head to parcast.com slash merch for more information
0: marta calvace and patty moths could barely believe anyone was still alive inside the Galeris volcano, but against all odds, they heard Stanley Williams crying for help buried somewhere in the rubble.
1: 500 feet below them, Williams was lying behind a boulder completely immobile. His leg was broken, the bone jutting out through his charred clothes. One of his feet was almost completely severed. His body shook violently going into shock from the massive blood loss. It was all he could do to stay conscious.
0: The soldiers who drove up to the summit with Marta and Patty refused to go down into the crater. It was against all regulations, never mind common sense, to climb into the smoldering inferno before they were sure the eruption was over.
1: The TV news crews, who unbelievably were still waiting on the summit, weren't jumping at the chance to head down and help, either. But
0: Marta and Patty had their minds made up. As they prepared for the descent, another car arrived and out-hopped three men eager to join them.
1: Ricardo Villota, Milton Ordonez, and Carlos Estrada, all researchers with the Colombian Geological Survey, had also ignored the warnings and driven up to help with the rescue. The Colombian volcanology community was a tight-knit group, and they'd worked with the missing scientists for years. Just weeks earlier, Ricardo had ventured up to the volcano's summit with José Arles Zapata. He refused to leave his friend in the wreckage alone.
0: The three men followed Marta and Patty down the steep crater wall. Halfway down, Carlos saw a man stranded on the side of the rocky slope, covered in blood and ash. Luis Lemery.
1: Lemery, Andy McFarlane, and Mike Conway had all been on the inner crater's rim when the eruption began. They all managed to make it to the yellow nylon rope that led up the slope to the summit, but only Conway had been able to pull himself up. He had made it to safety shortly before the rescuers arrived. LeMarie had followed behind him, but with his two broken legs and a broken clavicle, he was in no shape to pull himself up the steep rock wall. The fact that he'd made it up halfway was a miracle.
0: Carlos managed to drag LeMarie the rest of the way up. LeMarie was in such a bad condition, he could barely drink the water he was given.
1: This didn't stop the TV crews from bombarding him with questions. Lemarie struggled to relay what had happened. He barely muttered a few words before passing out from exhaustion.
0: Back at the crater, Marta, Patty, Milton, and Ricardo ventured further into the volcano. About 50 yards down, they found another man lying in the rubble, his entire body shaking. It was Andy McFarlane.
1: McFarlane had tried to follow Conway and Lemarie up the crater wall but he collapsed from exhaustion before he could reach the top. His palms had been burned off from a fall into the white hot rubble. His skull was fractured by a falling rock and his body was quickly going into shock from blood loss.
0: The four scientists rushed down to grab McFarlane. He was covered in blood and his skin was deathly pale. It took all four of them to carry him up the path, navigating through the boulders and debris.
1: Luckily, by 3.15 p.m., a rescue team from the Red Cross had arrived at the summit with medical supplies. The paramedics secured ropes to a metal stretcher and lowered it down the slope to help transport any survivors.
0: Once McFarlane was on the stretcher, the men on the rim pulled him the rest of the way up, MARTA AND PATTY CLIMBED BACK DOWN INTO THE CRATER TO CONTINUE THE SEARCH. THERE WAS STILL NO SIGN OF STANLEY WILLIAMS, EVEN THOUGH PATTY HAD HEARD HIM SHOUTING FOR HELP. EVEN IF THEY DID FIND HIM, IT MIGHT ALREADY BE TOO LATE.
1: MARTA WAS KEEPING IN CONTACT WITH THE OBSERVATORY IN PASTO. AS THEY VENTURED FURTHER INTO THE CONE, THE OBSERVATORY WARNED HER THAT Galaris WAS ONCE AGAIN SHOWING SEISMIC ACTIVITY. She and the team should get out immediately.
0: But Marta had no plans to leave her colleagues behind. She kept going. Gray ash had covered everything in the crater. It was impossible to distinguish a human body from a pile of rubble. But amid the monochromatic gray landscape, Ricardo finally noticed a sliver of yellow. Even from 100 yards away, Ricardo recognized it. Jose Arles Zapata's coat. He'd been wearing the same bright yellow coat just a few weeks earlier, when he and Ricardo stood on that same spot in the volcano.
1: But as Ricardo approached, he saw that Zapata wasn't wearing his matching yellow hard hat. His skull from the top of his head to the nape of his neck was completely gone, exposing his brain.
0: Ricardo refused to believe it. He came closer, lifted Zapata's head, and let out a blood-curdling scream. Zapata's brain fell right out of his head. Ricardo fell to the ground, inconsolable. Milton had to slap him hard across the face to snap him out of it. There was no time to grieve their fallen friends until all their surviving friends were found.
1: But all the rescue team found was more horror. Not far from Zapata were the brutalized bodies of the three tourists who'd taken an ill-timed hike into the volcano. Next, they came across a barely recognizable body that they thought might be Carlos Trujillo. There was no trace at all of Igor Menyailov, Nestor Garcia, Jeff Brown, or Fernando Cuenca. Whatever remained of them had probably been vaporized from the blast.
0: But there was one man still alive, a muffled, weak voice begging for help. Stanley Williams.
1: Williams was still huddled behind a boulder, buried under the ash. He had all but given up hope that anyone would find him. His throat was so dry, he could barely call for help. He was losing blood and consciousness fast.
0: Marta and Milton hurried over to help him, The first thing they noticed was William's leg. His pants had been singed by fire, and the broken bone poked through a hole in the fabric.
1: Milton saw a foam cooler nearby that miraculously had survived the eruption in one piece. He fashioned a makeshift splint for William's leg. Then the four scientists lifted him onto a blanket and hoisted him up, each carrying a corner. Every stumble made Williams cry out in pain. It was hard for the others to hear, but at least it meant he hadn't lost consciousness yet.
0: Williams was found only a quarter mile from the base of the crater wall, but the grueling journey over the rubble took them almost two hours. By the time they reached the bottom of the slope at a little before 6 p.m., a full team of rescue workers were waiting. They were stunned by William's condition. One medic tried to remove his bloodied cap, but this revealed that his skull was completely crushed with his brain exposed.
1: They tried to protect his head as much as possible, then made a more stable brace for William's leg. Finally, they moved the blanket to the steel stretcher and radioed to the workers on the rim that he was ready to be pulled up.
0: Even with the new brace on his leg, Williams screamed out in pain every time the stretcher jostled. When he made it up the 200-foot slope, a helicopter was waiting to take him to the hospital.
1: Williams was shivering violently. His body temperature was dangerously low from his massive blood loss. The last thing he remembers hearing before the helicopter took off was Patty telling the pilot to turn the heat on high.
0: As Williams lifted off, Patty and Marta stood on the ridge looking down at Pasto 5,000 feet below. Dusk was beginning to fall. Four survivors had been discovered, but two of their colleagues had died and another four would never be found at all. When the helicopter came back, Patty and Marta climbed in silently and flew away.
1: The rescue effort was over. The next step was searching for an explanation. Coming up, we'll look at the aftermath back at the UN conference. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy.
0: Now back to the story. By the time Stanley Williams was airlifted from Galaris Volcano, the other survivors were already trickling into the hospital. Luis Lemarie was the first to arrive at about 6:30 p.m.
1: One nurse said it looked like Galaris had chewed him up and spit him back out. He was covered in lacerations, bruises, and blisters. He was given anesthesia before the nurses started cleaning the dirt and shrapnel from his wounds.
0: An hour later, Andy McFarlane arrived. The staff gasped when they saw his condition. They immediately took off his singed clothes and started removing the ash and gravel from his gaping wounds.
1: His hands were swollen and blistered, and he was experiencing severe hypothermia but his most serious injury was a concussion from being hit in the head by a falling rock. Luckily, he didn't lose consciousness because the severe pain from his other injuries was keeping him awake.
0: After McFarlane, the helicopter carrying Williams finally arrived. His body was so mangled that one medical professional almost fainted. After seeing the hole in his skull, they immediately called in Pasto's only brain surgeon.
1: A CT scan showed that Williams had a subdural hematoma, a pool of blood collecting between the skull and the brain. As the blood accumulates, it puts pressure on the brain, which can cause seizures, confusion, loss of consciousness, or death. To make things worse, pieces of Williams' skull were embedded in his brain tissue.
0: Marta and Patty waited with Williams during the tests. He kept murmuring to them, I'm so cold. I want to be with my wife and kids. I don't want to die. Once Williams was ready to be prepped for surgery, Marta knew she had to leave the hospital and return to the conference. All her fellow scientists were waiting to hear what had happened, and so was the press. Someone had to control the chaos. Marta and Patty drove back to the hotel and braced themselves for the onslaught.
1: Thanks to the reporters who'd been trapped on the summit during the eruption, the story was already all over the media. Photos of Williams and McFarland's mangled faces were plastered on the front page of the evening papers, along with sensational headlines like, Volcanologists Devoured by Crater but there was so much confusion during the eruption, the reports were wildly inaccurate.
0: Needless to say, this was alarming for the colleagues, friends, and family members who were still waiting to hear if their loved ones had survived. The hotel hosting the conference didn't have phones in the rooms, so the lobby was packed with scientists clamoring to use the office's phone. At about 7 p.m., While Williams was still making his way to the hospital, the first two survivors pushed through the hotel doors, Andy Adams and Alfredo Roldan. They'd made it out of the crater just as the eruption began, covered in dirt and ash, but without any serious injuries. Their fellow scientists were so glad to see them. They initially didn't even ask what had happened. They just hugged each other and cried.
1: Marta and Patty arrived about an hour later, a little after 8 p.m. They delivered the bad news. Nine people were dead. Jose Arles Zapata and Carlos Trujillo, the three tourists, and four more scientists whose remains were never found. Nestor Garcia, Igor Menyailov, Jeff Brown, and Fernando Cuenca. They also brought good news. McFarland, Lemarie, and Conway were going to be fine. And Stanley Williams was alive, but in critical condition.
0: Until now, Galeris had never taken a victim in its history. And the people of Pasto were quick to blame the scientists for tempting fate. This was driven more by superstitions than by scientific analysis. One of the bellhops at the hotel told the researchers he'd had a premonition that Galeris would erupt. He believed someone had dropped a metal tool into the volcano by accident, which angered Galeris, causing the eruption.
1: The United Nations had their own questions about how the disaster had happened, and the conference attendees scrambled to draft a report explaining themselves. Researchers in Pasto had predicted Galeris' eruption the previous July based on seismic activity in the weeks leading up to the blast. Everyone found it hard to believe that there hadn't been any signs of an imminent eruption this time around. Researcher Fraser Goff went to the observatory to look at data from the past few weeks. He was stunned by what he saw. Tornillos, or sustained low-frequency seismic activity, had been consistently happening, increasing in frequency in the days before the eruption. Williams had seen this data before the expedition— and ignored it.
0: When the news reached the hotel, Andy Adams was in disbelief. Williams hadn't told the rest of the group about the tornillos. He said the volcano was tranquilo, and they'd all taken him at his word. Adams sat down at the hotel with a thick binder full of papers and charts, one paper written just a few weeks before, had predicted that Galeris would erupt by the end of the month.
1: The report also mentioned tornillos as a strong indicator of a possible eruption. He couldn't understand how Williams could lead his team into such a risky situation without even warning them about the signs of danger.
0: On the TV in the hotel lobby, the local news replayed the same clip on a loop. Stanley Williams in the hotel lobby right before the expedition, assuring the press that Galeris was tranquil. It made Adams feel sick.
1: Even more infuriating was Williams' lackadaisical attitude towards safety gear. He had actually mocked Adams for wearing his hard hat. That hard hat had ended up saving him when a cascade of rocks blasted out of the volcano. And now, Jose Arles Zapata had been found with half his skull missing, Williams was being treated for a brain injury, McFarlane had a concussion too. If they'd taken proper precautions, they'd all be alive and unharmed.
0: The other scientists at the conference were also surprised by the news that three tourists were dead, It was unfathomable that Williams had allowed these three random passersby to join them in the crater without any safety gear, knowing full well that an eruption was imminent.
1: Even in a small blast, volcanic debris flies faster than a bullet from a handgun. The smallest pebble can be fatal if it hits someone in the wrong place. And the rocks that had shot out of Galaris were much bigger than a bullet, ranging from 5 to 1,000 pounds. The fact that anyone in the crater survived was a miracle.
0: By about midnight, all the scientists had called their families. The chaos in the hotel was dying down, and the survivors were exhausted, physically and emotionally. But Patty couldn't even think about going to sleep. Instead, she... Marta and Patty's husband, Pete Hall, went to a 24-hour restaurant down the street. As they quietly picked at their food, they tried to fathom what had happened, how Galeris had erupted so suddenly, how the friends they'd eaten breakfast with that morning were gone forever, how anyone had survived in conditions so brutal."
1: What struck Patty the most was that she and Marta had been so single-minded in their rescue effort that they climbed right into the smoldering volcano without even putting on their gas masks. She'd been so driven by adrenaline that the recklessness of the mission hadn't even occurred to her. Now, with some emotional distance, she realized what a dangerous gamble she'd taken. If Galeris had erupted again, she and Marta would be added to the body count.
0: As they walked back to the hotel, Patty stared at the silhouette of Galeris towering on the horizon. The volcano was still rumbling and shooting steam. Patty wondered about the four scientists who hadn't been found. Everyone agreed they'd probably been vaporized by the heat, but if any of them were clinging to life, they'd be dead by morning.
1: For the nine people who died in Galeris Volcano, this is where their story ends. In a heap of smoldering debris, victims of the natural fury they had dedicated their lives to studying. When the smoke cleared, rescuers would venture up to salvage what was left of the bodies, this time wearing full safety gear and fire-resistant clothing. But no more survivors were found.
0: Yet for the seven people who had survived, the story was just beginning. Coming up, we'll look at the aftermath of the Galeras eruption.
1: Now back to the story.
0: Two days after the Galeras volcano eruption on January 16, 1993, Andy McFarlane, Mike Conway, and Louise Lemery were released from the hospital, expected to make full recoveries. Stanley Williams was clinging to life, and his prognosis was still grim.
1: During Williams' operation, his surgeon had realized that a skull fragment had lodged itself just millimeters away from the sigmoid sinus, one of the main vessels connecting the brain to the jugular vein. If the injury had gone just a hair deeper, Williams would have bled to death almost immediately. But even though Williams had survived, there was no way to say how severe the long-term damage would be. A chunk of his brain described as the size of a peach pit had been totally destroyed, which could affect his memory, speech, and behavior for the rest of his life.
0: When Williams' wife, Linda, arrived at the hospital in Columbia, she was prepared for the worst. Linda's father and brother, both brain surgeons, had told her that even if he survived, Stanley would never be the same as he was before the injury. So despite his bloody bandaged head, two broken legs and the webs of IV tubes circling his hospital bed, Linda was pleasantly surprised to see that Stanley was conscious and mostly coherent.
1: Williams was speaking, which was a good sign, but he was rambling, mixing up words and losing his train of thought. His brain's cognitive functions had been severely damaged by the head injury, and at that point, it was unclear whether he would ever fully recover.
0: On top of the neurological damage was the emotional damage. McFarlane recalled that the first thing Williams said to him after the eruption was that he felt terribly guilty for what had happened. But according to Williams, his colleagues reassured him that he hadn't done anything wrong. There was no way he could have known Galeris was about to erupt.
1: He was unaware that back at the conference, they were whispering the exact opposite. As they studied the evidence and put together their report, It became clear that the seismic activity leading up to this blast was identical to the activity before the eruption the past July. This data had been shared with Williams before the expedition, but he had dismissed it as insignificant.
0: On January 17th, three days after the eruption, Williams was finally stable enough to be flown back home to a hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. His long-term prognosis was still unsure. A surgeon told Linda Williams, he's going to be able to feed himself and brush his teeth. And beyond that, we just don't know at this point.
1: His recovery blew away all expectations. He was almost completely deaf in one ear. He struggled with cognitive problems, mental fatigue, and seizures and it would take years of surgery, bone grafts, and physical therapy before he could walk again, but he was able to do much more than feed himself and brush his teeth.
0: Just three weeks later, on February 9th, 1993, he gave his first interview to the press from his hospital bed in Phoenix. When the article ran in the New York Times, the other Galeris survivors noticed a curious line. Quote, The lone survivor among the group was Dr. Stanley N. Williams.
1: There were, in fact, six other survivors, including Andy McFarlane, who was quoted in that same article. It's hard to say how the mix-up occurred, but once the lone survivor label was applied to Williams, it stuck, and he ran with it.
0: Three days later, Williams taped an interview for NBC's Nightly News. From his hospital room in Phoenix, Williams told the reporter that, quote, there were 10 people and I'm the only one that's alive. Before anybody had a chance to react, it had started. It just exploded. And right in front of me, everybody died in seconds. McFarlane, who was back home at Florida International University, was dumbstruck. The next day, he saw Williams give another interview on the Today Show. He told Katie Couric that there were no signs an explosion was imminent. The observatory didn't notice any of the seismic activity they'd seen before the eruption in July.
1: Nearly every word Williams said was completely untrue. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was lying. He's always maintained that, at the time, he fully believed his version of events was the truth. William's doctors had predicted his brain injury might lead to memory loss, and even in the absence of a physical injury, it's common for survivors of traumatic situations to forget or misremember details. A 2007 study at the French National Center of Scientific Research found that memories of traumatic events can be selectively erased, even if other memories surrounding the event remain intact. So, while it may look like Williams was lying to avoid taking the blame for the disaster, it's also possible that he legitimately lost memories of the eruption, or that he subconsciously repressed them because of their traumatic nature.
0: This explanation didn't fly for Andy McFarlane. He was so flabbergasted, he wondered if Williams was suffering from even worse brain damage than anyone had thought. He called Williams and asked him why he was claiming to be the only survivor. Williams replied that his words had been taken out of context. This may have been true at first, but he never corrected the error. In fact, he continued to gloss over the other survivors in interview after interview, even after McFarlane confronted him about it.
1: If the initial error can be explained by memory loss or shoddy reporting, Williams' failure to correct it can be explained by what he called his not-inconsiderable ego. Williams was still in the hospital throughout February 1993 and it was becoming clear that even once his body healed, his mind would never fully recover. He recalled, I was not doing the groundbreaking work I had done before 1993. Increasingly, I filled this void by playing the survivor. I was no longer a pioneering volcanologist. I was the guy who lived through the eruption that killed six other scientists. I became Mr. Galeris.
0: Finally, in the summer of 1993, McFarlane wrote a letter to Williams' colleague at Arizona State University, Christopher Sanders, genuinely worried about Williams' memory and mental state. Days later, Williams sent back a scathing letter. Quote, when the New York Times was published, Andy and Mike Conway became very angry for two reasons, a feeling of guilt for not having done anything for me and jealousy for the recognition which I received. Today, in Time magazine, Andy is quoted as saying that he actually tried to carry me down the volcano. This represents a blatant lie from a guy desperate to cover up the reality of the situation, end
1: quote. Andy McFarlane did try to carry Williams out of the volcano, but he didn't make it very far because of his own injuries. Again, it's likely Williams forgot about this moment because of his head injury, and whether out of defensiveness or pride or bitterness that the other survivors had tried to leave him behind, he lashed out instead of admitting his own memory might be faulty.
0: But to the other Galera survivors, this behavior was just an extension of how Stanley Williams had been before the disaster, aggressive, cocky, and never one to admit a mistake. He refused to accept responsibility for his colleagues' deaths, later telling The Guardian, quote, everybody who went there knew they were going to a dangerous volcano. That was the whole point. In the days before the fatal eruption, several different people had talked about the activity of Galeras to Colombian scientists who'd lived there for 25 years. Would they have allowed their close friends to go into a ridiculously dangerous place on that day?
1: While there were definitely things that could have been done differently on the Galeras expedition, like wearing safety gear and keeping in closer contact with the observatory, at the end of the day, Williams was right. It's tempting to blame him as the group's leader for making the wrong call, but the seismograph had been discussed with several researchers at the conference, all of whom were accomplished, educated volcanologists in their own right. They knew what they were doing was dangerous. They knew that the only surefire way to survive a volcanic eruption is by staying away from volcanoes in the first place, but they agreed to risk their lives for the sake of scientific advancement.
0: The biggest advancement that came from the Galeris tragedy was a stricter safety protocol for future volcanic expeditions. Back at the observatory in Pasto, Marta Calvace implemented a new safety plan that required anyone going near the volcano to wear hard hats, full-face gas masks, and fire-resistant clothing.
1: Just as importantly, the observatory started using instruments to take gas measurements from the volcano remotely instead of risking lives by sending scientists in physically. This was a smart decision as Galeras erupted twice in the next five months, on March 23rd and June 7th, 1993.
0: The data from Galeras fueled the debate about the best way to predict an explosion. Stanley Williams was released from the hospital by the end of February 1993, and by the next fall, he was back at work at Arizona State University. But his mental capabilities never fully returned. He still mixed up words and struggled with logical reasoning and abstract thought.
1: Instead, his research mantle was taken up by a grad student who had worked under him in Pasto, Tobias Fisher. Throughout 1993, Fisher authored a paper, co-authored by Stanley Williams, espousing Williams' theory that both gas samples and seismic activity should be used to predict volcanic eruptions.
0: But Williams wasn't ready to entirely give up his work just yet. He had to prove, to himself more than anyone, that Galeris hadn't defeated him. As soon as he was physically able, he wanted to go back to face the volcano that had almost killed him.
1: Returning to the site of a traumatic memory is often used as part of cognitive behavioral therapy for PTSD. Revisiting the place where the trauma occurred can help patients reconstruct their jumbled memories, overcome their fears of a certain place or situation, and finally move on from the traumatic experience.
0: In 1995, Williams returned to the Galeris Crater, with Marta Calvace by his side, he climbed to the exact spot where he'd nearly been killed two years before. It was unsettling, but he told himself he wasn't afraid. If he let himself be afraid, Galeris had won. He stood there on the crater's rim and thought back to the day of the explosion, Igor Menyalov taking gas samples from the fumarole, a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Jeff Brown waving up at him, the three tourists who'd wandered down, standing right next to him as he explained what they were researching. The sun finally peeked out from behind the fog, and then they were all gone.
1: Williams made it through the first day of research in the crater without incident, but the journey was taxing on his fragile health, and on the second day of the expedition, he could barely make it up the wall out of the crater. By the end of the week, he was so worn down he was hospitalized with pneumonia. Williams later said, "'Once again, Galeris showed me who was boss.'"
0: Williams kept traveling and studying, even through his physical weakness and mental slowness. He refused to let Galeris take away the one passion that had sustained him, going where few have ever gone, staring into the mouth of an active volcano. But as the years went on, his projects and grants dwindled, and grad students moved on to more capable mentors. The media shifted their attention to the next natural disaster story, and the volcanology community continued to grumble that William's reckless behavior was responsible for the tragedy.
1: In 2001, science reporter Victoria Bruce published a book drawn from interviews with the other six Galaris survivors called No Apparent Danger. The book is ruthless in its portrayal of Stanley Williams as an arrogant, deceitful egomaniac. Bruce describes him as a captain who, out of ego, takes his boat into a hurricane and causes the deaths of his crew. But taken alongside Williams' own account, it painted a much fuller picture of what really happened before, during, and after the Galeras eruption. The ignored seismic readings, the disregard for safety protocols, the false memories that had been held up as fact by the press.
0: The book also ruined whatever was left of Williams' career, the controversy continues to haunt him and he's become something of a persona non grata in the scientific community. But his work lives on through Marta Calvace and her observatory team in Pasto.
1: The series of eruptions throughout early 1993 gave Marta's team invaluable evidence about the seismic activity and gas emissions that forecast volcanic blasts. In May 1997, the Journal of Volcanology and Geothermal Research dedicated an entire volume to Galeras. Although there's still debate about the best way to predict eruptions, Marta's research on Galeras has advanced the conversation.
0: As for the other survivors, after their burns and broken bones healed, Andy McFarlane and Mike Conway went back to work, taking a research trip together to the Cerro Negro volcano in Nicaragua, the night before the expedition was set to begin, they both had vivid nightmares about the Galeras eruption. McFarland decided it might be time to stop walking into active volcanoes. And after that trip, he turned to a less dangerous job as an associate professor of geology.
1: Andy Adams abandoned volcanoes too, but not entirely by choice. He returned to his post at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico But in late 1993, the geology department's budget was cut and he was transferred to the environmental department, handling the disposal of nuclear waste.
0: Luis Lemery spent months haunted by nightmares of the eruption before he was able to sleep through the night. He too changed course and took a job with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons.
1: Patty Moths returned to her research in Quito, Ecuador but with more caution than before. She says that before stepping foot into a volcano, she asks whether the samples she's collecting are really worth the risk. She told Stanley Williams, life is fragile and the power of volcanoes is incomprehensible. The whole region and people who live even at a distance are altered by this energy. They don't feel in command of the situation. As we say, El volcán mande aquí. The volcano rules here.
0: The people of Pasto, Colombia never gave up their superstition. Most of them still believe it was the hubris of man that awakened the wrath of Galeris. They argued that the experts should have known better. Walking into an active volcano is literally playing with fire.
1: Although scientific evidence does not suggest that the fury of the volcanic gods was responsible for the Galeras eruption, one man's arrogance certainly may have tempted fate on that tragic day in January 1993. But the blame can't be placed on any one person or decision. For all the research done by volcanologists like the Galeras team, nature is still unpredictable. Disaster can strike at any moment. And if you're going to tempt fate, remember to wear a hard hat. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with a new episode.
0: You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Desi Jadakin and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.